0: Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is where we were last week. And I'm just going to begin by looking in 2 Corinthians 4 and then drawing comparison to Romans chapter 8. So if you want to find Romans chapter 8, I'm going to toggle back and forth there. If you just want to look at 2 Corinthians 4, that's all right too. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says here, This light momentary affliction, <clears throat> is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. A weight of glory beyond all comparison. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, now, verse 2, Paul says, In this tent we groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And in verse 4, he says again, For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together. In verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. And then lastly, chapter 5, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, We walk by faith, not by sight. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 24, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Now keep your finger in 2 Corinthians, but we're going to pause on Romans 8 for just a moment. These are the only two places in Paul's writings that talk about groaning. The only two places in Paul's writing where he makes a comparison between afflictions and sufferings and the glory that's to come. And the only two places in Paul's writings where he talks about the relationship between faith and sight or hope and sight. So these are really connected passages of scripture. And here's here's the utility of this what I want to point out is that in 2 Corinthians 5 he makes reference to this groaning. We're groaning because we're burdened. We're groaning because we long to to put on glory. But here he compares it in Romans 8.22. He, he sort of explains this a little bit better. He gives us a different kind of image. He says, We know that the whole creation, the whole creation, us included, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All creation, all things, are groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. What is he trying to say? He's saying something amazing is coming. Something amazing is coming, but something difficult is going to happen, and it's going to be your experience until then. Something amazing is coming, but something difficult is going to happen until then. So I've titled this sermon, uh, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Uh, I don't know if this is still the, the go-to book, but for the, those of us of a certain vintage, uh, this was uh, sort of the, the, little, the Bible of, of what to expect while you're expecting your child. What to expect when you're expecting. What should we expect out of this life? This, we're part of a whole creation groaning in the pains of childbirth. What should we expect in this life as we wait expectantly for the return of Jesus? I'll tell you a little story about how Paul learned this. Of course, Paul knew it. He studied the Old Testament. He was familiar with the prophets and the stories of God's people and the persecutions and the sufferings, and and he knew it. But he didn't expect it. And so he had to learn it. In his first missionary journey, Paul is sent out from Judean Antioch, real close to his home city of Tarsus, and he's sent out, he goes down to Caesarea Philippi, he shoots over on the Mediterranean to Cyprus, and he goes up to the western end of Asia Minor, and from there he begins to head east. And if you plot this on a map, you can see that he's, he's making a circuit, and he's heading home back to Tarsus and back to Antioch, his home church. But along the way, something begins to happen. Everywhere he goes, as he announces to the Jews first this great news that the Messiah has come, that the gospel has been fulfilled, that the kingdom is available to them now in Jesus Christ. Some of them are happy and some of them are really angry. And this begins to steamroll. And finally he gets to, uh, it's a T word and I can never, it always pops out of my head. Oh, L word, Lystra. He gets to Lystra and there he has this extraordinary experience. Him and Barnabas go in. They're mistaken for Zeus and Hermes. So they're practically worshipped. They stop. They halt the worship service in their honor. And they have this great opportunity to preach the gospel to everybody from the highest to the lowest in Lystra. So it seems like it's this, this great moment in his missionary journey. But it says that some of the Jews from previous towns that he'd visited got together and they, they literally sort of uh, snowball this this persecution against Paul. And they show up in Lystra and they agitate the Jews that are there and they kill Paul. I mean, they almost kill Paul. They take, they take him and stone him so well that they think they did it. Now, you've got to imagine how well do you have to hit somebody with stones till you, the angry party, are pretty well convinced that they're dead? is pretty good. There's a pretty good amount of stone hitting that has to go on. Paul's not dead. He gets up. He presumably heals up a little bit. And then, it says that he goes back. He goes back the opposite direction of where he's clearly headed. He goes back to all the churches that he just planted, all the disciples that he just made. And it says he went back to strengthen the disciples and to Uh, help them endure in their faith. And this is the message. He said to all of them, hey, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. His message going out was, the kingdom has arrived. His message going back was, through many uh, tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Paul knew this, but he didn't expect it. And so he had to learn it. Like, you and I know that troubles are going to be a part of life. Paul says, all who desire to live godly in this present world, we're going to face persecutions. We go, mm-hmm, but not me. We don't expect it. And that causes problems, doesn't it? I mean, back here in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is, as we talked about last week, it's the theme of don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Why do we lose heart? Because we don't know what to expect. He's saying, I want you to know what to expect because if you don't have the right expectations, it's going to lead to disappointments. You know what I'm talking about disappointment with God. Doubt can I trust God for my future? And then a growing sense of disbelief. Less and less do you believe that the word about God is true, all because you had the wrong expectations. Now I want us to understand that in context, right? Paul is—he wants to—he uh, wants to validate his ministry in the eyes of the Corinthian church. The primary mark against his ministry is how much he suffered. How could the hand of God be upon somebody who suffers like that guy does? And Paul wants to say, no, no, no! That's the mark of my apostleship. And he also wants to protect the Corinthian church. From this disappointment. From this doubt and disbelief. So, what should we expect as we wait for Christ? What should we expect as we wait for Christ? And so we're not going to look at all the passages Scott read, but we're going to focus in on the one in chapter 1, chapter 4, and chapter 12. So let's open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 to 5. What should we expect? Let's look at these verses and then uh, draw a conclusion. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Here's the lesson from this verse. That you and I, we, we came here today in part because some of us, we want to experience God's comfort. We will experience God's comfort. And God's comfort will be seen in our lives in, through, our afflictions. We can expect God's comfort, but only in connection with afflictions. Look at chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We want God's treasure, this power. We want to experience it. Blessed are those, the psalmist says, whose strength is in you, who get strength in their life from God. We want that. And we want the power of God to be displayed Right? When the the people in your life who are either weak in faith or who are unbelieving, you want them to see the power of God that you've seen. How are we gonna experience that treasure? How is that treasure going to be seen from us through our troubles? Afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. It's gonna be in those experiences. And through them, and not separate from them, but connected to them. You're not going to get to know the glory of God in Christ as treasure apart from these experiences. Also, notice in verse 11, we who live are always, uh, verse 10, carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. Same exact relationship. We want the life of Christ. It's only going to be, it's only going to come in and by and through and our, our dyings. All the ways that we lose. Think about all the things you've lost. This is the context for which we get to appreciate, experience, and display the life of Jesus. And then lastly, let's look at chapter 12. Turn to chapter 12, verse, we'll pick up uh, in verse 9. We get, get the main of our point here. The Lord said to me, Paul says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Again, what should we expect? We should expect that the power of God, the, the, the power and strength of Christ will be in our lives, but only through, only in connection to our weaknesses. Like Think about some of the ways that you're weak. You hate those things about yourself. You're trying to compensate for them. But that is where you will meet and where others will meet the thing that you so value, the strength and power of God. When we talk about what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives, this is what the Holy Spirit is pushing and pulling us into into our afflictions, into these troubles that come into us so that there we might experience Christ. So that there we might behold the glory of God and that others might meet God through us in those places. Now, go back with me, please, to chapter 1, verse 5. This connection, there's the last set of blanks, sorry, power, weakness. You should have guessed that, though. What should we expect? We should expect to be like Christ. 2 Corinthians 1:5. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. There is a direct relation between the life of Jesus and our lives. How did he experience the power and glory of God, but through his sufferings and death? And so it will be for us as well. Jesus lays this out extremely plainly and clearly for us, though we dislike it immensely. At the very beginning of his call to discipleship, he says, if any of you want to come after me and be my disciples, cool. No, he says, take up your cross and die. And then I will lead you to real life. Theologians call this uh, the cruciform life, that the Christian life is cruciform in the shape of the cross. And here's the principle, that just as God's power and salvation and glory was revealed through Jesus' death, so also... Those who are joined to Jesus should expect... What to expect? We should expect to experience and to display that glory in the same way. God's glory revealed and comes to the world through the suffering and death of the Messiah. So also the Messianic people should expect to experience that glory in the same way, through our sufferings and troubles. Alright, this, this is the main point of these passages. This is the theme from, verse, from chapter 1 to chapter 12. Chapters 4, chapter 6. This is the, the constant theme of Paul's apostleship He's trying to prove that he's an apostle by pointing to the parallelism between Christ's life and his life. And he's trying to prepare the Corinthian church by drawing parallels between Christ's life and what they're going to be experiencing. So this is the main theme. But now I wanted to bring it and talk about it in terms of our situation. Now, first of all, I think there's a couple problems that we have with this teaching, right? First of all, uh, we don't like it. Uh, would you rather? Would you rather get punched in the nose or have an all-inclusive trip to the Bahamas? Uh, would you rather spend a winter underdressed in Siberia or win a thousand dollar? Pizza Ranch gift certificate. I don't know, maybe that's a, I don't know. Some of you, that might not be that great of an illustration. But it's like, hang on, I don't think you know how the would you rather game works. Stop comparing terribly uncomfortable things and easy and fun things that we all want. Right? None of us want discomfort. All of us select, I mean, that, that's like the primary criteria we use to make decisions. Which one's more comfortable? So we don't like this. We've got this other thing going on, though, here. This is the second big problem, which is the uh, health, wealth, prosperity, quote, unquote, big, thick, bold, quotes, cough, cough, gospel. But this is how it goes by. Which is, what what the prosperity gospel is, is that we in America, this is our gift to the world in the last 150 years, we took this natural human impulse and we baptized it. We turn it into this quasi-Christian cult. But the problem is that it appeals to us. It's, it's, it's so appealing and so for the last 100, 150 years it has this, this growing influence on mainstream Christianity and has been in, infusing our expectations for, uh, of our faith for generations. We talk about old time religion We're, you can only go back 100 years it's still corrupted by this ideology that God's primary desire what you should expect as God's people in this world is that ooh, up and up we're going on the upward path right? and you're going to get better you're going to get a promotion you're going to get a salary increase all of your appliances are going to last way past the warranty right all of the wall-to-wall right Four, white picket fence wall-to-wall carpet 2.5 kids The third problem is that, because of our discipleship in the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, none of us is exempt from this. By the way, that's why we're talking about this today. I'm not coming at you know uh, just by, by way of explanation. I don't like uh, listen to you guys throughout the week or talk to you and then like craft my sermons. <laughs> I know some people sometimes you feel like that. That's just the spirit. Uh, but this is something that is so pervasive. Uh, I pick themes to talk about, when I do pick themes that I really need, and I figure if I need it, there's a good chance that some of you need it as well. But the Bible can be confusing because we're so corrupted by this God-wants-to-bless-me, God-wants-to-bless-me ideology. So just in our men's prayer yesterday, We read Matthew chapter seven verses eight to eleven. We prayed this: How many of you, if you have a son and he asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a toy, you'll give him a scorpion? Well, how much more does your Father in heaven want to give you good things? And I'm like, good things? Let's go. What is good things that God wants to give me? And then we flip the page and we go to Psalm 52. Verses six and seven. We're praying this yesterday, and there it says, uh, "See how the righteous laugh at those who would not make the Lord their refuge, at those who thought that the the that riches would provide comfort for them, who, who had their hope in wealth." Uh, it can be is it confusing? Does God want to give me wealth, or does He not want me to be wealthy? I, Right, we're oriented around this question, and it seems sometimes like Scripture is confusing. Is, is Scripture promising me prosperity or is it promising me persecution? Is Scripture calling me to pray for success but also warning me about the dangers of it? I'm not quite sure what to do here. What does the Bible mean by prosperity? So let's now take what we learned from 2 Corinthians, from these passages, and let's apply them to the health, wealth, prosperity framework. What is our health? Christian, what is your health? Here's what your health is. That you will experience the comfort and power of God, which is only going to be known to you through your afflictions and physical weaknesses. There is our health. This is what you can expect while you expect Christ to return. Not age-defying, illness-defying physical health. That is not our health. What is our wealth? What is our, in other words, our treasure? Our treasure is the glory of God in Christ, seen in the gospel. We talked about this, how we can see the glory of God by the power of the Spirit as we hear the gospel. The glory of God known in Christ, seen in the gospel, which we only know in our afflictions, our confusion, our trials, our discouragements. Just a rephrasing of 2 Corinthians 4 8 and 9. That's our wealth. Our wealth is not material comfort, security, ability based on how much money we have in our bank accounts. That's not our wealth. The gospel and the glory of Christ is our wealth. What is our prosperity? Which is another way of saying, what's the good life for us? What's the good life? The good life, again, 2 Corinthians 4.11, is the life of Christ manifested in our mortal bodies, in our afflictions, in our dying. The life of Christ lived out in us by the power of the Spirit as we experience the various losses of life. How many losses have you experienced? So many. That is where the life of Christ is lived out. And that's our good life. That's our prosperity, not world-defined prosperity. Hashtag blessed. Right? That's not ours. This is ours. The life of Christ lived out by the Spirit as we experience it. He says in chapter 4, verse 17, the inner renewal. Your inner person is being renewed day by day by the power of the Spirit. That's the life of Christ bubbling up within us, keeping us going. Now, this is what's true, but I know that it's not always helpful. And I was thinking about this this morning, and so I wrote a little bit more of the sermon. You'll be happy to hear. This isn't in the notes. Uh, Why is this the way it is? We like to know why. Why? All right. Back in chapter 1. Chapter one. God, why is this the way it is? Why is that our health and our wealth and our prosperity? The health, wealth, and prosperity of the people of Jesus Christ. Why is it this way? Verse 4 of chapter 1. God comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Why is this true? Why is this the way it is? It is this way so that divine comfort might be known by us and in us. There's no other way to know the comfort of God than in these situations. Verse chapter 4, verse 7 again. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Why? So that God's power might be known by us and in us. Again, this is what we long for. I want to know the power of God and I want people in my life to know the power. This is why. That's why. It's good. And then chapter 12, verse 9. This is why I like paper Bibles. Isn't this fun? I can just turn and it's exciting. Just check it out. It's cutting edge tech. Chapter 12, verse 9. What an old guy, huh? Jeez. He said to me my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in weakness therefore I'll boast all the more gladly my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me I get more power of Christ in my weaknesses why 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 so that the power of Christ gets to rest on me I get it and others can see it God does not keep us from troubles God does not keep you from troubles because then we would never know his glory truly. That's it. God does not keep you from troubles because otherwise you would never know his glory truly. So God lets us live in a troubled world and experience those troubles so that we know his glory. We need his glory and we know his glory and we get to be made glad by it. That's why. All right. You're here in Second Corinthians 12. We're going to stay here for the rest of our time. Friends, now I want to take this and just talk personally about it in our lives. Listen, there's no avoiding suffering. I mean, you know this. But there's this expectation that we can sustain and the world wants to foster that if you do this, you'll miss that trouble. If you do this, you'll miss that suffering. There's no avoiding sufferings. Look at chapter 12, verse 10 here. I love this list. That he gives. For the sake of Christ, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. This is what we're going to experience. There's no avoiding suffering. You know why? Number one reason? I'm a sinner. Being a sinner is like being suddenly dropped into a strange mansion filled by uh, eccentric owners who collect antiques and being told to walk uh, shoeless sockless, in the middle of night, on a moonless night, uh, through this house from one end to the other, right? You're just going to, oh, bang your toe all over. Like, troubles are going to come to me because of what I am. I'm a sinner. I'm going to just be bashing my toes against all sorts of pointy Victorian end tables, all from one end of the house to the other. I'm a sinner. And if I wasn't a sinner, you were sinners. And you heap troubles on me. Every time I get together with you people, troubles, Right? <laughs> Every time you get together with anybody, troubles. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We live in a sinful culture, right? It's trying to extract our life and resources from us. It's trying to give us only things that we can buy from them. And then then we live in a world that's just, it's groaning. Catastrophes come. They got viruses out there that are mutating and then like, blah, and then we got politicians out there and then we got weather and right. All right. There's, there's no, there's no not suffering. So what should we expect as we expectantly wait for Christ? What should we expect as we follow Christ in this world and wait for his glory? We should expect weaknesses, insults, hardships, and calamities. I excised the persecutions because Christians kind of in America have this like persecution fantasy thing going on. I think these are four more potent and real of that list of five that I want to draw attention to. Weaknesses, you don't like those, you got them in spades. Insults, this is what we give to each other. Hardships, calamities, this is what you can expect. You can also expect divine comfort and daily renewal by the power of the Spirit, and the Spirit transforming you from one degree of glory to another, and the power of God and the glory of Christ, that's also what you can expect. This is what you can expect. So we will be those who flourish in suffering, who walk by faith and not by sight. Do you want to keep playing? Do you desire this treasure? Do you desire this comfort? Do you desire this strength? There's no comfort anywhere else. I mean, if there was, if there was a contender, I'd say, well, check it out. You've been there. You've done that. That's why you're here. There's no comfort anywhere else. There's no treasure anywhere else. There's no power anywhere else. This is the thing. So do you want to keep going? What should we do? What should we do while we expect? Here's the first thing. Acknowledge acknowledge weaknesses. Look at in chapter 12 verse 9, look at what Paul says. In the second half, he says, "I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses." He says, "I'm not going to try to shush these things up in my life. I'm going to be honest and acknowledge my weaknesses, afflictions, trials, and losses." Positive thinking is not a Christian virtue. Truth speaking is a Christian virtue. So we have good things to say to ourselves in the truth, but we also have hard things to say. So we do not pretend that we're not sad. We don't need to pretend that we're not disturbed or that we're not confused or we're not frustrated or scared. We don't just step back and speak faith into our sufferings as if we had the ability all in ourselves to take control of all the problems in our life and dispense with them. That's not what we do. What we do is we bring our life and our troubles to Jesus Christ and the throne of grace where we can find mercy and help in our time of need. That's what we do. Starts with acknowledging our troubles. And then we need to resist the anxious aspirations of the self-centered heaven for me now. I say anxious aspirations, right? The world has pitched this, Aspire to this, this little you-centered heaven, and I am so anxious to get there. I want it so bad. I've just been completely brainwashed. America, I'm I'm reading a, a history of America. America was built on advertisement. The folks in the old world were handed pieces of paper that said, in the new world, you just pick up the gold (laughs) off the ground. And when that group of suckers came and populated the East Coast, the brave souls who went West and thought, well, there's no gold here, But there's suckers on the East Coast. They came back and handed them bills that said, hey, there's gold out West that you can just pick up off the ground. That's how European settlers populated North America was one group saying, hey, here's gold. And then the other group going and saying, where's the gold? Well, there's suckers that way. I'll hand them advertisements. That's how America grew. (laughs) We love advertisements. We love direct appeals by products promising to give consumers comfort and treasure and power and life. This is what advertisement is. And that has been your discipleship and mine. You know, churches are always, oh, we were trying to make disciples. The world's doing a fantastic job of it. You know the song, My Blue Heaven? You know the movie, uh, Steve Martin, Rick Moranis? Not a good movie, don't watch it. It's probably fine, I don't know, it's been ages, 80s movies, you know, you can never trust them. Uh, but there's, apparently there's this song, My Blue Heaven, written in 1927. It's been covered dozens of times, most recently by Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins and uh, Nora Jones. I mean, like, this has enduring appeal for people. And what is My Blue Heaven? A fireplace, a cozy room, a little nest, just Molly and me and baby makes three, we're happy in My Blue Heaven. Right, it's this, this self-absorbed, self-contained, materialistic nostalgia. That's what we've been imbibing now for over a hundred years, three generations at least. The expectation of health, wealth, and prosperity is a product that is being sold to us by Wall Street, D.C., Hollywood, and Madison Avenue. It's not what God's people expect. So resist my blue heaven. It's hard. Resist it. And then... Turn to Christ. In our afflictions, in our sufferings, turn to Christ. Look at chapter 12, verse 10 here. I love this phrase. Look at the very first phrase. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I confessed last week that I tend to rage against troubles, right? As soon as any discomfort comes into my life, I collapse into a puddle of, why God, why me, right? Well, what does Paul say? Be content with hardships, insults, persecutions, calamities. Be content. First of all, be content means expect it, right? Like when it comes, don't be all, why God? Be like, eh, But second, the the word here, be content, is not the word for meh. It's the word for okay. He says, be content for the sake of Christ. And look at the last phrase in verse 10. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He's saying, be content because, not just because Christ will get glory, but I get Christ." Be content because I get Christ. So when I say be content, uh, all of us kind of have this fatalistic thing. Well, are you just saying give up? No, no, no. Take your vitamins, go for hikes, floss, okay? But don't imagine that you can avoid troubles by doing this or that avoiding troubles is God's will for you. When troubles come, okay, be content. The word content is, is interesting. You know what the word con- being content means? It means to be in the condition of having contents. Think about that for just a second. Your mind's blown by the etymological uh, work I did here. Contentment is the state of having contents, the condition of being satisfied. Now let me ask you, according to 2 Corinthians, what are the contents of, say, our jar of clay? the treasure of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ. When Paul says I'm content with Christ, I have the contents of the strength of Christ. And so we turn to Christ. We turn to Jesus. We get to know him better. We look for his grace, his strength, and we trust him and we wait. And then the last thing that we should do is share the treasure That's the goal. God comforts us, and with that comfort, we comfort others. Think about that for just a moment. God comforts you, and then you have the comfort, and you go comfort others. Now, who just comforted you? God. And now who's going to comfort them? You. You're doing the God work. God is roping us into his family business. I comfort sinners. You all get to comfort sinners. That's what we get to do. That's, that's the climax of this. You get to go make a substantial good in people's lives, which is what every single one of us is fretting and worrying and hoping and planning and purposing to do. Share what you learned so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord might cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. The sermon's been all about the tribulations, but I want you to hear the word the kingdom. What, is the, what does the kingdom mean? Kingdom is a place of power of the king. It's a place of glory. It's a place of total security. It's a place of prosperity. That is where we're going together. That's where we're headed, and that is what Paul is saying that we can enjoy right now by the Spirit even today even in our sufferings. But the point of this sermon, the point of the passages we've been observing is not just that the kingdom of Jesus Christ, His power and glory and strength and prosperity can be enjoyed by us, even in our sufferings, but truly in our sufferings. That is where the kingdom of Christ will be experienced So don't lose heart, friends. Be of good courage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all just heard your word together, and yet... I know that every single one of us, myself included, when we leave here, we still want to pick comfort over discomfort 100% of the time. It's still practically the thing we use to make decisions. And yet, discomfort will come. There'll be a lot of groaning, a lot of troubles, a lot of hardships in our life. At least, Lord, by your word, help us to learn a little bit more of what to expect from life as we follow Jesus and why this is not just okay, but why this is good. Because it is here, when we are weak, that we are strong. And here, where we are experiencing insults and hardships, that the treasure strengthens us and lifts us up. And here where we are afflicted, that we know the comforts of God. So Lord, let this truth be good and sweet to us. And let it help us. For your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen.